often it's asked, what are you going to do for Christmas season? What do you do? A lot of churches, and it's fine. You can just preach right through what you've been doing. I think it's important to take a break, so we do. And we have received a lot of great comments over the years. We break for what's called the season of Advent. You've heard of that? Maybe you grew up in an environment in church or in a family. You had an Advent calendar, maybe. You had an Advent wreath and candles, and we'll we'll touch that in a moment. Just know what it means. It it, it simply means that you're shifting your focus away from everything else and on to Him. We'll talk about the symbolism of the candles and the wreath in just a moment, but that's all this is about. So we came out of Luke. We're going to look at four special messages in Advent. Advent, what does that mean? From the Latin word adventus, which means coming. So there's two aspects of coming that you focus on at this time of the year. You look back with great thanksgiving for the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank God for that. But we also look ahead to the second coming, the second advent, when Jesus comes and consummates the kingdom. So what what is this all about? There's all sorts of different ways to describe this, different denominational understandings of it. For our purposes, very simply, there's a wreath. We won't even talk about the evergreen and the pine cone and the construction. Just think of the wreath as a circle, just like a ring. We have a ring ceremony in, in, in our marriage, the holy covenant of marriage. What is that symbolic of? The most important thing it's symbolic of is there is no beginning and there is no end. So the wreath is symbolic of the eternality of God, but there's also more. Not just the eternality of God, but the immortality of the soul. The soul lives on forever. We don't just go to sleep and it's over. But now what about the candles? There's typically five candles. There's three purple, a pink, and a white. So we'll back out of the white and come to the first purple. The white is Christ. Represents Jesus. We do that on Christmas. So Christmas Eve, we'll light the white. Coming out of that, there's, a, there's another purple candle. And that would be the, the, the candle of, of peace. The, coming out of that is the pink, the candle of joy. Then we have the candle of love, and then we have the first candle that we light is the candle of prophecy. What is that all about? It's the promise. The promises that have been given in Scripture. And the Scriptures tell us what? That the Messiah is coming. So we light the first candle, the first week. We have three more weeks to do this, to center our hearts on the reason for the season. That's what it's all about. It could have lots of different colors. It could have lots of different meanings. The the color purple is a regal color. It, it has a tendency liturgically to, to remind us of, of prayer and sacrifice. So there's lots of ways to look at it. But primarily, our focus is for this to remind us of what this season is about. It's so easy to get caught up and to miss Christ in Christmas, even those in the church. I'm not even talking about the world. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about me. So, Advent 2019, this will be our first sermon The title is The When of Christmas. And one final point. There were many who who were gone this week, and I want to make a point, too, just to say thank you for you think about all that you have given to this church. We live stream, and that was a great gift given to the church. And there were many who were gone this week for the holiday. And they said, you know one of the great gifts that we've been given? Because remember we did our blessing list last week? I hope that some of you did that and shared it with your family at Thanksgiving. What were you thankful for? Many said we're thankful that we can simply watch this when we're out of town. So just know that we turn you on and we're watching. We're seeing what's going on. So just know you're, you're live right now. Don't go to sleep. Don't go. The camera goes right on you. As soon as you start to make that sound, it goes right on you, picks you right up. So don't do that. But they're just, they say thank you to those who were giving us this gift to be able to put this out on the Internet. The whole, and not just the sermon. 
for our people, we live stream the whole thing. So they get to see, they, they're in church service today with us. So it's good to, well, I was going to say good to see all of you. I'm glad you can see us. God bless you and, and thank you for being with us. The when of Christmas, Galatians 4. So we're out of Luke. We're in Galatians 4, 1 to 7. Let me make this clear. You heard about this phrase, the most wonderful time of the year? You heard it? You say it? You believe it? Well, it is indeed the most wonderful time of the year, but only if that time is rooted in the timeless wonder. If it's not, it's not the most wonderful time of the year. It's just another day, just another holiday, just another way to spend time. But if it's rooted in the timeless wonder, it truly is the most wonderful time of the year. God's intrusion into time with his truth. Ready? Let's take a look at the scriptures. From the mighty pen of the Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant, infallible word. Let's pray. Father, it's no accident we're here, everyone by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your words from this pulpit. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, comfort for those in storm winds and rest, for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. Make it a word of salvation, a deep word of salvation, because we always believe that some in this sanctuary and certainly by way of the internet have never ever been in a saving relationship with Christ. Lord, we'd ask that you would give us ears to hear. For we cannot hear on our own in the natural. Minds to understand. We need to be renewed, transformed by the renewing of the mind and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. So come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, okay, the when of Christmas. Remember last week I said not every sermon has three points. This is another one of those. Just two. Take a look. Number one, who set the time? Might seem self-explanatory, but I promise it's a little deeper. So we'll see who set the time. And then number two, why then? But just a little overview for the passage. What, remember, there's, we talk about two horizons. There's an original audience that the passages are written to, always. Then we're the second audience, the second horizon. What does this mean to us? In the Roman world, what we need to understand, Paul's talking about this. What does it mean to to, to be a child, a slavery to a child, and then a child of God, and having been adopted, and, and, and now you were made also an heir? Under Roman law, adopted children had the same rights as uh, children by birth, by blood. That was in the Roman, uh, that was in Roman authority. All legal rights to the father's property, even if the child was a slave. And Paul's talking about something here like that. Now listen, no second-class son, equal to all the sons. So now, we, as God's children, 
by adoption have the same rights as the Son by nature, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul is telling us in this passage. We're going to focus on the fullness of time, so we won't unpack any of that. But that gives you an understanding of the context of that passage. It's important that not only we understand that we have these, responsi- these rights, we have resources, and we can claim what he has provided for us as adopted children. You've heard claiming the promises of God. You can claim what Jesus has. Why? Because you're his. So there's the context. One more point. Have you heard about that time frame between the Old and the New Testament? <clears throat> have you heard about that? It's called the intertestamental period. You know the Old Testament ends and then the New Testament begins, but it doesn't begin one page space apart. There's 400 plus years, about 425. What was that? Well, some theologians over history have said this was a time when God was silent. That's true if you're thinking of God being silent from special revelation, what you have in the scriptures. God was silent. The canon closes at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi opens in Matthew in the New But God was not silent, nor was he asleep on his throne. And you're going to see that in this message today. God was orchestrating all things, all events. God is is superintending and overruling all things, everything. He's in control of all things. So we have that as an understanding in that intertestamental period, those 400 plus years, God was at work. What was he doing? We're going to take a look. And that's going to bring us to an understanding of the when of Christmas. Who set the time? Why then? Let's head out into some deep water, shall we? Let our nets down for a catch. Number one, it's not as simple as it seems. Who set the time? Let's take a look. When the time had fully come, God sent his... Okay, what's, what's, what's going on in this passage? What is Paul assuming? Listen. If God is sending a son, Paul tells us, that son already existed. There's something that Paul is assuming the eternal, remember we talked about the wreath, the eternal existence of the second person of the Trinity. The eternality of the Son of God. Not in the flesh, in the Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So Paul is assuming that in this passage. But then he says something happens. When time, time ended up becoming as pregnant as Mary. Mary was ready to give birth, so was time. And in the fullness of that time, we have the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is telling us, don't, 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 don't start with a baby in a manger. Don't, don't, don't do that. That's not where we start Christmas. Yes, we have a baby in a manger, but it starts way, 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 way in eternity past. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of them together, okay? So Paul is assuming that right here. So now let's look at a prophecy and look at a fulfillment. We're going to see God at work telling us what's going to happen and then actually pulling it off. Habakkuk 2.3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Many, many, many Jewish texts speak of the fulfillment of the appointed time. Do you understand what that means? There's an appointed time in history for what? Everything, everything happens according to the appointed time. It's a way of recognizing God's perfect wisdom and sovereignty in history. Do you see that? 
That phrase, that prophecy is telling you something. There is nothing that happens to you outside of the will of God according to his appointed time. And you go, man, that's, that's I know it's deep. That's hard sometimes. Yeah, I know it's hard. But let me just simply flip it on you. Would you find any comfort at all in knowing whatever has happened to you? Whatever happened apart from God? If it were something, there was nothing God could do? Is that a comfort? People try to protect God's reputation. When the planes flew into the buildings in 9-11, they said there was nothing God could do. Is that a comfort to you? Is that a comfort to the families who sat in those pews who lost loved ones? It's a horrible thing. There was nothing God could do, then there is no God. There's no one to bow down and to worship. What we have to come to terms with is what? The secret things belong to God and the revealed things belong to us, Deuteronomy 29, 29, and you won't understand it all. Why? You're not God. And we don't get a vote. And you say, well, this is hard. I know it's hard. I'm a pastor. I deal with suffering all the time. I'm not saying it's easy, but we don't have the whole story. We don't see the beginning from the end. And not until we get to the other side will we begin to understand. Isn't this true? Think about this. Don't look at life right now where you are. Look back five years ago. Can't you see stuff now five years later that you couldn't see when you were in the middle of it? The term is living life backwards. Great theologians have said this. Life needs to be lived backwards in order for you to understand it. Why? You can't understand it when you're in the middle of it. It's too deep. And often it's too painful. And I'm not saying this is easy. It's not. But this is a truth that isn't being taught. God is sovereign. God is in complete control. Dr. Sproul would say this. If there's one maverick molecule, I know I've said it many times, but it's worth repeating. If you believe there's one maverick molecule, that means that God couldn't do something. Then you can't believe him for anything. Is there a maverick molecule somewhere in the universe? If there is, God is not God. Something else is. Fulfillment. Mark 1.15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. How does God work in history? Listen, let's just give a couple examples. And, and you know them. But by walking through a few examples, it'll begin to make more sense in your life. How do you explain Joseph? There's no way to explain it apart from the sovereignty of God. God was overruling and superintending all things when his brothers threw him into a well to kill him, pulled him out, and sold him to Midianite slave traders. And what's the results of that? The great famine comes, and Joseph is used to what? Save God's people. How would you explain Moses having been retrieved from the reeds of the Nile? What were the results of that? Moses becomes the deliverer of God's people. Esther, the little Jewish queen. What is that all about? What does she do? God overrules everything that's happening in that particular world at that time, and she saves God's people from what? Annihilation. Even the hostility, listen to this, God uses the hostility 
God doesn't create the hostility. God uses the hostility of neighboring nations, those that hate the Jewish nation. He uses that hostility as an instrument of judgment in his mighty right hand. What does that tell you? God is in control of everything. I know it doesn't look like that at times. But he is. And if you can find comfort outside of that truth, tell me how. Because I cannot. I cannot to a family who's just lost a loved one, perhaps a child. I cannot find that. I have to know that God is in control and that God knows more than I know. And that God is good. And that God loves me. And I can trust him even when I cannot trace him. I have to know that. Or I can't get through this life. I can't do it. Life is not a random roll of the dice. So we have the promise and we have the fulfillment. Hebrews 13, 20 is probably the classic text that should really strengthen our faith. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant. There, that's all you need to know. What does that mean? From eternity past, Jesus was on the way. This is not repair work. God wasn't hiding in the bushes in the Garden of Eden going, oh, I hope they don't sin. I hope they don't touch that tree. Oh, stand, stop, 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 stop. Stop! God ordained! And yet man was responsible. Explain that to me, pastor. I can't. And I don't have to. Because I'm not God. Who can explain it? God is sovereign and we're responsible. One of the professors one time in seminary drew, drew, drew two lines on a board. And said, just imagine these two parallel lines. One, the sovereignty of God, and one, the responsibility of man. They just go off into eternity somewhere, and they just keep going parallel. No one can understand it. But you're responsible for the decisions that you make, and yet God is sovereign over all of it. Go figure. You know, the best thing, ask him when you get there. You know, I never really fully understood that sovereignty, responsibility thing. I think I get it now. God, in the eternal covenant, promised Jesus because he had ordained even the fall. He didn't cause the fall, but he ordained the fall. God governs all human plans and events. Let's look at a couple things very quickly. Just a few. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. We make plans, and it's God's purposes that prevail. That's the best I can give you. I can only give you what's in the Scripture. Okay? Human responsibility to reason and act does not contradict God's sovereignty. That's why people have commented sometimes, even in your prayer, you say that everybody's here by divine appointment, even if they change seats. Yes, because if you change your seat, God has ordained that. So get up, change your seat. Say, I just tricked God. No, you didn't. You did exactly what he ordained you to do. It's deep. But it's the only comfort you're going to have in this world that is so broken, that is so difficult to walk through. That is going to come at you with one circumstance of suffering after another. How will you get through it without having a God that you can at least trust in when you cannot trace him? Here's the best explanation I have ever had in people, and I've dealt with a lot of deep suffering. Pastor, why? Why? Let's just touch on this. for Pastor, why? My child, why? I don't know why. But I know what the answer cannot be. It cannot be that he doesn't love you and the cross shows you that. 
That's all I have. Well, I don't know why, but I know what the answer can't be. It cannot be he doesn't love you. And the cross convinces us of that truth because he sent his own son to die in our place. Okay? A couple more and we go to point two. Lamentations 3.37. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? All that happens is by God's word. Remember in the beginning? In the beginning, God created and God said in verse 3, God said, God said, and that's it. He speaks. And it happens. How about Amos? How difficult was the passage in Amos? God delivers both what? Good and calamity. What did Job finally come to the understanding of? And you have the whole story of Job. He didn't. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those children that you're sitting next to and holding, no, not yours. That spouse sitting next to you is not yours. That next breath you take is not yours. The beat of your heart is not yours. It's his. All things whatsoever are ordained. Your death, the day that you breathe your last, is ordained. We'll look at that in a moment. Take a look at Ephesians 1.11. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. There, it says it all. Everything is working according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, and yet we don't understand it all. Because we don't have the mind of God. So take a look now. Your death was ordained. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. Before one of them came to be. So skeptical unbelievers will say silly things to me at times when we talk about these deep truths. So God has ordained the day out there for me to go, to breathe my last. Okay, pastor. Okay, okay, okay. So what happens right now if I just go outside and I step out off the curb and I stand in front of that bus and that bus takes me out? Gone. I guess, I guess that's not the day. No, no, you're right. That wasn't the day down there. That was the day. The day when the bus went over you and their eyes get real big. You can't mess with God. God is in complete control of everything. And yet you're responsible for your actions. If we don't get this, then we don't understand the beginning. of. We don't understand the th- Christmas. We don't. And you can't, you can't be a smorgasbord saint. You know what that means? Take some of the things from the scriptures you like. Right? You go down the smorgasbord, go to a nice buffet after church today, and you go down the line. You go in the fellowship hall, right? We have some snacks. You go, oh, I like that little cupcake there. I like that. No, I don't want those carrots. I don't want that today. <laughs> I, 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 that little muffin, I'll take that. I'll take that piece of cheese. That bro- I don't want that broccoli. Leave that for the little children. Give that to Claire. I don't want that. I don't want that. You can't do that. You take all of God's word. You don't get a vote. So God is sovereign. Yes? Who set the time? Same guy that sets the time for everything. God. Number two, why then? We're going to look at this from a human perspective. We'll be very brief. What does it mean? What was happening in those 400 plus years when it was silence? Right? No revealed scripture. But what was going on? 
We're going to look at a couple things that seem to make sense from a human perspective. We're going to look at a time that seems like it was an unimaginably ripe for evangelism back then. It seemed like it was a perfect, and, and, and obviously in God's providence, it was his perfect time to send his son. So we're going to look at a couple things. Okay, you ready? Galatians 4.4, 4, one more time, let's be reminded. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son. The fullness of time. We're going to look at three groups of people that really come together to give us this deep understanding. We'll look at the Hebrews, we'll look at the Greeks, and we'll look at the Romans. We'll start with the Hebrews, okay? We're going to look at the nation of God. Then we'll go to the Greeks, then we'll go to the Romans, very briefly. And you'll see how all of this fits together. And you'll see what was happening in those 400 years, okay? Let's take a look at the Hebrews. What did they give us? Scriptures, synagogues, and a Savior. What in the world does that mean? Well, remember the synagogues that popped up after the destruction of, of Jerusalem had been sacked and, and the temple had been destroyed and the people are all dispersed but they still wanted to worship God. So what happened? These synagogues start to pop up. Well, remember when Jesus comes into this world, there's synagogues everywhere. You don't just have this central location for worship. And remember, he wasn't welcomed in the temple anyway except when he was 12, right? He's asking those questions but later when he was in his ministry, he wasn't welcomed. So we get the synagogues, we get the scriptures. What happens in the synagogues? The scriptures, the scroll is handed to the itinerant, either, either, either the attendant of the synagogue, the, the rabbi who's the attendant, or the itinerant rabbi who's passing through. The scriptures are handed to you, and the scriptures are read, and then they're unpacked, like we do here every Sunday and Saturday night. We unpack the scriptures. We exegete them. We tell you what it means. And then there'd be prayer, time of prayer, and then songs. Often they'd be singing the halal, right? The Psalms, you know that. So, so this is what the Hebrews give us. Let's take a look at Jesus when he comes in. Let's take a look at Jesus, Matthew 423, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues. So this was a perfect time for Jesus to be moving around and preaching and getting the word of God out. But let's go a little bit deeper. Let's take a look at this. Ready for this? The law of Moses in Acts 15, the law of Moses had been preached in every city. Notice that. In every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. This word was spreading. The synagogues launched this. And what else? Why do we add the word Savior in there for the Hebrews? What were they looking forward to? Once again, they're a conquered nation, right? Remember, remember the triumphal entry? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Friday, they're crying out what? Crucify. Why? Why? What did they want? They wanted Roman rule to be removed from their lives. They figured the greatest enemy that they faced was Rome. Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not your greatest enemy. No, no, your greatest enemy is sin, Satan, and death. So if I come and I reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem, you'll have an earthly kingdom for a little while, but then you'll die in your sin. I didn't come for that. So, So they're ripe for the Messiah. They want Roman rule to be removed, and they want the kingdom of God. They want to be an independent nation again. So we have the Hebrews, yes? What about the Greeks? What are the Greeks? Now remember, the Greeks conquered culturally. Please don't miss this. They gave us culture and communication. Koine was was the language of the day. But listen to this. You need to get this. That language was the language of the conquered nation, not their conquerors. But they used that language, and they end up creating this universal language. Athens has this great culture, and it birthed a concise language. So what could take place? Conversation. 
dialogue, theological, philosophical. They could talk about deep things and everybody could have a basic understanding. This is what the Greeks end up bringing. So you have the Hebrews who are excited about the Messiah coming and they give us the scriptures in the synagogue and we're looking for the Savior. The Greeks, this overwhelming cultural accomplishment through the Greeks, Athens was a Greek culture. But remember this, Alexander the Great, he's the son of Philip of Macedon. He rides into human history. And do you remember what was said about him to get an understanding of what he had accomplished? Do you remember the movie Die Hard? Some of you remember. I'm not going to show the clip. I'm not going to put any. I didn't show the clip today. Some clips I put on, but not the one. The, the German terrorist Hans Gruber in Die Hard. He says something that he didn't make up. He's quoting Plutarch. A.D. 60 to A.D. 120. A a, 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 a Greek biographer, he quotes Plutarch. And what does Plutarch say about Alexander the Great? To give you an understanding of what he had done. When Alexander, this is what Hans Gruber says. When Alexander saw the breath of his domain, he wept. For there were no more worlds to conquer. How far and how wide had the Greeks gone? as far and as wide as the known world existed. But we're not done. They conquered culturally. But now on the heels of the Greeks, we have who? We have the Romans. And the Romans now are going to conquer how? Militarily. And now they're going to create this unimaginable peace that the world had never, ever, ever, ever seen, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Okay? I'm going to show you four things that are going to spring us right into an aspect of what happened in Paul's life, and then we'll come to the conclusion. Don't miss this. You have the Hebrews. You have the Greeks. You have the culture. You have them hungry for Messiah. Now you have this unimaginable peace the world had never, ever experienced, ever, under Roman rule. Four things. Peace in place of tribal warfare. Tribal warfare, it it ceased to exist. If you rose up as a tribe, you were eliminated. Great networks of roads and bridges. How do you think Mary and Joseph traveled like they did and everyone else? All, leads, all roads lead to Rome, the ease of travel. How did Paul travel often on his missionary journeys? By road or by sea? By sea. What did they do on the high seas? They removed piracy on the high seas. There was piracy everywhere. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't go anywhere without being accosted. Being killed and your stuff being taken. They eliminated that. Under Rome, when the Roman flag was flying, none of that happened. No one rose up against Rome. And then finally here, this, this impacts Paul. Protecting its citizens from robbers and rioting. Go to Acts 23. Watch this. The Jews are trying to kill Paul. The Roman commander called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. Provide horses for Paul and take him safely to Governor Felix. Why? Why, why, would, the Ro- why would the Roman centurion care at all about Paul, who's preaching the gospel of Christ? Who cares about that guy? Here's why. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. The Jews are going to kill him. Paul's dead. He's not going to be able to finish his writings. Christianity is not what it's supposed to be today. What happens? But I came, says the centurion. Yeah, God sent you. See that? I came. God sent you. With my troops, and I rescued Paul, for I had learned that he was a Roman citizen. 
You miss that when you read that all by yourself. You have to see it in the context of the whole cultural environment. They saved Paul's life. Why? Because God ordained it. God ordained Roman rule at that time. And God ordained Paul as a Roman citizen. And God ordained that they would step in and save him from the Jews who wanted to kill him. Why? God wasn't finished with him yet. Let me tell you something. Do you know that you're immortal? Until your ministry is done. And then you will breathe your last. And then your soul will go on to be with Jesus. And you'll be resurrected in body later. But did you know that you won't? No one can do anything to you. No one. Until God is finished with you. Did you know that? I hope that's a comforting thought. And we see it right there in the life of the apostles. We saw it in Joseph and we saw it in Moses. And you can go throughout all of the Old Testament and the New. Can't you look in your own life? Of course you can. You see God's hand on everything, but often you have to see it backwards. It's hard to see when we're in the middle of it. Okay? Let's take a look at an old friend of the the cross. Ready for this? Thank God for Caesar Augustus. Pastor, what do you mean a friend of the cross? Well, if it wasn't for good old Caesar Augustus issuing a a decree for a census, our Lord Jesus would not have been born in Bethlehem. Thank God for Caesar. Thank God for Caesar. Caesar issued a decree God ordained it from before the foundation of the world. Why? There was already a prophecy out there that made it clear where Messiah would be born. And he was not going to be born in Nazareth. And that's exactly where they were. So who shows up? Oh, thank God for Caesar. And his awesome decree to send them back to their hometown. So that we would have a fulfilled prophecy. Because one unfulfilled prophecy... One, one that doesn't meet the, the fulfillment, and it's all gone. That's that one maverick molecule. So let's take a look at Caesar. Thank God for Caesar. Joe, why should that be a comfort to you? No matter what's happening in the government, in the world government, God is in charge of all of it. Every aspect God is in charge of. So let's take a look. Joseph went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the line of David. He went to register with Mary, pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While there, the time, the time, the time, when the time had fully come, the time was as pregnant as Mary was. And the baby was born where? Exactly where Micah said. Hundreds of years before, what does Micah say? But you, Bethlehem. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from ancient times. If he's born in Nazareth, it's over. You know, some of the unbelieving, even scholars, skeptics in the past would say, well, he was from Nazareth. Some of the great, great atheistic scholars would say, no, 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 no. He lived in Nazareth. He operated out of Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. Read the book, read history. Understand what you're saying before you say it. He was born in Bethlehem. 
Matthew 2, 5 to 6 clears that up for us completely. But you, quoting, but you, Bethlehem, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The fullness of time. How do we close this? Ready? Got to see this, how it all fits together now. See these three groups of people? You're going to see these three groups and you're going to see Jesus. You're going to see Jesus come right out of the pages of Scripture and hopefully right into your heart. One, to the Hebrews. Men were dogs, Gentile dogs, all men, dogs. To the Greeks, men were barbarians. To the Romans, men were slaves. And that, of all of those three groups, the Romans were right. They didn't quite understand. They thought we were slaves. They thought the Jews were slaves to them. And the Jews thought they were slaves to them, but no. Earthly, yes, but temporally, yes, but we're slaves to what? Sin, Satan, and death. The greatest enemy in, for Israel wasn't Rome. It was sin. So the Hebrews said that men were dogs, and the Greeks said men were barbarians, and the Romans said men were slaves. What did Jesus say? Men were sinners in need of a Savior. All men, from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every barbarian, every dog, every slave, from every nation, were sinners in need of a Savior. We are still slaves to sin. Until when? Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died. While we were still slaves, Christ died for us. Did you know that right now we are still living in the fullness of time? Did you know that? It's not just a passage in Scripture. When in the fullness of time Christ came and, and we celebrate that. We're in the fullness of time right now. What does that mean? You still have time. Tonight it might be too late. So those watching by way of the internet, if you have never, ever been in a saving relationship with Christ, right now is the fullness of time. Tomorrow it may be too late. And with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, guess who says come? Christ. Come to Christ. Put your doing down. Put your good works down. Put your time, talent, to put all of it down. Come to Christ by grace through faith. And salvation is yours. To... A dog? A barbarian? A slave to Jesus, a sinner who needs a Savior. That's who you are. And he died to make you his. Will you come to Christ by grace through faith? Will you? We'll pray in just a moment. Pray very simple words with me. You're never saved by a prayer. It's not, it's not the profession of a prayer. It's the possession of a faith. So we'll pray together. Every believer in this room, pray with me this morning. I'm sensing the Spirit is moving in this place. Let's pray together. Father, if there's someone in here right now, and we know that there is, certainly by way of the Internet, someone who has never surrendered control to Jesus, they need simply to, to a simple prayer, the prayer of the publican. We, we would ask right now that you would just simply pray along with me in your heart. Just pray these words. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's it. 
God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's it. And salvation, if you prayed that by grace through faith, God has given you the gift of repentance and faith. God has raised you from death to life. God has given you the gift of faith. It's all a gift. But you must acknowledge. You, you, you are responsible for acknowledging that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. And God gives you the gift to acknowledge it. Come to Christ. Right now is the fullness of time. Don't wait. Don't delay. Come to Christ. And Lord, for the rest, many who have walked for decades, help us to keep walking by faith and not by sight. Trusting you even when we cannot trace you. Knowing that he who began a good work will one day bring it to completion. And this we thank you for. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Do all stand as we continue our worship.